0: One of my favorite hymns. You think about the love of God, it's a mighty current going beneath us and all around us. It's my prayer that we'd see the love of God and His Word as we open up to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 29. If you're visiting with us, Romans is in the New Testament. Right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. We will turn to Romans chapter 9. And follow along with me as I begin reading. For you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, What is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one mess vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the jews only but also from the gentiles as indeed he says in hosea those who were not my people i will call my people and her who is not beloved i will call beloved and in, every, in that very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring we would have been like Sodom and have become like Gomorrah. When I was a young boy, there was a season among many, a season of rebellion where I planned to run away and live in the woods nearby my house. I had made several attempts, packed up my belongings, And had gotten them on my bike and had rode through the paths and taken my journey. Seemed like very far, but was probably less than a mile away from our house. And I had made numerous attempts, but never had succeeded in actually staying the night in the woods. In fact, I I never could last till dinner. Um, I would usually come, and I was close enough that I could still hear my mother calling from the porch. Dinner! one particular attempt uh, i've never forgotten because it was on my dad's birthday whatever had gotten me upset that day i decided i would go and go to my campground and set up my makeshift camp but then i began to have second thoughts i was like it's my dad's birthday i shouldn't do this today i'll do it tomorrow so returning home i expected us to eat dinner eat some cake or whatever dessert my mother had made, and then whatever my mother had bought, we would give to my dad as his birthday present. While we did eat, and I'm sure we had dessert, something surprising occurred. Uh, instead of us giving gifts to my dad, my dad gave gifts to us. I remember he bought my brother an acoustic guitar, and I was into... Uh, having electric guitar, and I needed an amp, and God love him, he bought me an amp, uh, and, and I got an amp that day. And uh, as you can see, even as a little boy was quite humbled that my father had lavished on me when I was willing to run away. He'd given gifts to me when I didn't deserve it, and it was humbling to see my rebellion in the face of his great mercy it's my prayer that as we look at Romans nine nineteen through 29 that we would be humbled that we would see that our heavenly father is rich in mercy and that he has lavished his mercy upon us even when we've tried to run away we contemplate God's sovereignty, which is where we found ourselves in the last several Sundays, looking at in Romans 9 in particular, tough truths, haven't they been? Very difficult things to swallow, um, expanding our, 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 our mental capacities. Maybe we've been drowning, seemingly, in the love of God and the understanding His great character. But when we contemplate God's sovereign purposes, we even heard it in testimonies today i thought i was doing this but then looking back i saw god was at work when we contemplate his sovereign purposes particularly as we've seen in romans chapter 9 his purpose of election verse 11 we realize just how small we are we realize that we we really aren't in a, a position to question god and his ways fact to do so as we'll see in our passage this morning would be to exemplify a rebellious heart and so as creatures and that's something we need to remember we're creatures created by God our response must always be to humble ourselves before him as our good creator but also to praise him and magnify his great grace in our life in fact he's magnified his mercy in us. See, God's ultimate purpose, as we're going to see this morning, is to make known the riches of His glory, to make known the riches of His glorious mercy that He is dispensing upon His people. It's my prayer that we would be gripped by this greatness, that we'd be gripped by His great mercy that has been given to us as individuals who do not deserve it, and that we would stand in wonder of our God this morning. In order to steer us in this heavenly trajectory, I want us to see from verses 19 through 29, God's authority to show mercy, God's desire to show mercy, and God's plan to show mercy. And those points will be up on the screen for you. God's authority to show mercy, God's desire to show mercy, and God's plan to show mercy. And I pray that as we see this, hopefully at a greater degree than maybe we did when we came in this morning, that we'd be gripped by these truths and that we would praise and honor our Savior. Our passage begins with another question. We've seen several questions through the, the book of Romans, and particularly here in Romans chapter 9, and, and we're faced with another one. And, and these questions are questions about what Paul is teaching. No doubt, as he would be in synagogues and, and teaching these things, possibly even in the churches them, themselves, he received regular questions, sometimes even objections to these things. And, and we see them here as he begins to answer. And, and the question we see here in verse 19 is, Why does he, that is God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? This question is specifically in response to Paul's assertion in in verse 18 that God has mercy on whomever he wills and that God hardens whomever he wills. And so here's really the heart of the question. Maybe this is the question you have asked as you contemplated on these truths or you've read through this passage. If God is free to harden the hearts of whomever He wills, how can He fault me for my sin? Or how can God hold me responsible if I don't believe, if it depends on Him? Doesn't that seem logical? I mean, if God, you're sovereign in all these things, if if your purposes of election and your mercy do not depend on human will or human exertion, as he says in the verses above, then why can he fault me for not believing if I can't do that apart from him, apart from his mercy? Well, it's at this point that Paul stops addressing human objections to God's sovereign purposes. He's actually already answered that question. But here, the questioning begins to cross a line that we cannot cross. See, it's okay for us to have questions. I hope you do have questions. Brothers and sisters, it's all right to have doubts, to struggle with the Scriptures. No one says you got to come here and have it all figured out, because I tell you, nobody here does. It's okay to have questions. Lord, why are you doing it this way? How, how? How does that work? How's that playing out? It's okay. It's okay to have questions, but there's a line by which we must not cross, and that line is to begin to question God. There becomes a sinful rebellion of of saying, hey, God, this doesn't doesn't match up to my standard. And Paul even responds, and he says, who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Who are you? Who am I? And it's from this perspective of an arrogant human heart that we begin to believe that God is somehow accountable to us. But when it's reality the other way around, we're accountable to Him. And so He says, Who are you, O oh man? Who are you, O oh woman, to answer back? to God. You are a mere human being. And you're going to question the God of the universe for how he deals with his creation? As parents, we somewhat understand this response. Maybe you've experienced with your children in their rebelliousness that they, they, they move beyond asking questions to questioning our authority. Um, and and begin to say no, or no, I don't think so. And, And what do we have to do? We have to quickly remind them who's the parent and who's the child. As my mother used to say, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it, right? I hear some amens there, all right. There comes a point to where they're not really asking any questions anymore, they're just delaying. And their questions are really trying to be a tactic of saying no to us. And what Paul is trying to remind us in a far greater manner is that we're the children. And our perspective is just this little bit at best. And we're going to begin to question God and how he does and carries out his affairs in the world. So he reminds us that that we are the creature and God is the creator. Look in verse 20. He says, After, who are you, O man? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable Paul uses here the picture of a potter molding clay. It's a pretty humbling picture, isn't it? We're the clay. and In fact, if you think about the Genesis account, we are. We're dust. And he fashioned man out of the dirt of the ground, and he breathed life into Adam and made him a living being. Paul is reminding us, as he's actually referring to the prophets who would remind Israel of, uh, of these things, as Israel would be complaining and, and say, who are you to answer back to God? You're but mud. And he created you. And he has right and authority over you. And I want you to see in verse 21, he says, does not the potter have right over the clay that's authority language right my kids are getting ready to go think pink pottery or something here later this week you know the pot's not going to say why'd you paint me this way they get to do it however they want and the person who crafted them put the handle where it's going to be is this going to be a cup or is this going to be a vase or is this going to be a bucket the potter determines what it's going to be Paul uses that analogy to let us know that we cannot answer or object to God's dealings. Notice what he also says here, to make out of the same lump, one for honorable use and another for dishonorable. Notice we all come from the same lump. And this is what we've been trying to kind of get our perspective Changed This lump is sinful humanity. Sinful humanity. This isn't innocent human beings who are just perfect and undeserving of judgment. No, these are, this is sinful humanity who's willfully rebelling against God. And so everyone is out of the same lump, and this includes Pharaoh. Pharaoh came out of this lump. Esau came out of this lump. This lump is full of of evil human beings. See, that's strong language. Even Jesus says this, talking about the goodness of God. He says, even you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. It's pretty, it's kind of like a backhanded comment. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father Give good gifts to those who ask. And so this one lump is full of evil people, you and me, all of humanity, under the just judgment of God. Why? Because we're all from Adam. And as we saw in Romans chapter 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because why? All sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. So what is the just response to the one lump? Throw it in the fire. It's decayed. It's, it's, it's no good. That, 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 that would be a just response of God. And so does God not have the right to judge? That is what he means here when he says make out of that same lump, one, and this is where we get, we move from groups to now individuals, one vessel for in dishonor. And so what if he chooses to show now mercy to another? And this isn't arbitrary, God's just flipping a coin and just, by luck, I'll pick that one and do that one. No, this is all against his good, righteous purposes. And we only have a smidgen of idea what these are. But it has nothing to do with us, at least in whether we're good or bad. So what if he chooses to show mercy to some, making them for honorable use? Does he not have right over the clay? Does he have not right to show mercy if he wants to show mercy? And to bring just judgment where just judgment is need to be brought? Brothers and sisters, we, we must never forget, we, he is the potter, And we are the clay. Nevertheless, what I want us to see here is that God desires to show mercy. And this is part of his character, as we saw last week. That that I will show mercy to whom I show mercy, and compassion to whom I show compassion, was God revealing the character of who he is. I'll let my, my glory pass before you, and I'll proclaim my name before you, Moses. And he says, I will be merciful to whom I be merciful. He's a merciful God. He's a God of grace. And so Paul has already asserted here that God's authority to do with human humanity, sinful humanity, as he wishes. Because all humanity is under judgment. But what we see here in verses 22 through 23 is that God wishes to make known his glorious riches by magnifying his mercy. Okay? But here's what we're going to see. His mercy is magnified against the backdrop of his judgment and wrath. Okay? That's what we're going to see. Look in verse 22. He continues this picture of the potter and the clay in order to describe, in principle, God's ultimate purpose. Look in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory. See that full sentence? There's purpose behind it. Now don't let the question, what if God, throw you off. He's not posing some hypothetical situation that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. The idea here is he's being gentle, but this is in fact what God is doing. He's just giving an illustration with Pharaoh and Israel. He's going to explain it as he lays out God's plan the end of 9 and going all the way through chapter 11. This is what's going on with Israel's rebellion. So here's what he's doing. He's saying just as God hardened Pharaoh, and by extension even Egypt, in order to show his mercy upon Israel, so God is doing the same thing throughout the world. This is typical of God's pattern of doing things. And we see two purposes here, a secondary purpose and a primary purpose. Let's look at the first and the secondary purpose. God's dealing with sinful humanity is to show his wrath and power against sin. So this is the same lump. What is he doing? He's going to deal with them in order to show his hatred towards sin. He's going to show this exceeding sinfulness of sin. But notice he says he endures sinners with great patience. Patience for what? Well, allowing them to go their own way. To fill up their iniquity. In order that he may show his power over them. Again, this is like Pharaoh. We saw last Sunday. Why didn't God kill him with the first plague? but he extended it over ten plagues so that the world would know he is God and there is no other. Does he have no right over over the clay to take out of that same lump one vessel, Pharaoh, and to judge him, but to take advantage of that judgment, to declare his power and warn the world, I will judge sin? Does he not have right to do that? That's what he's getting at. And so in the same way, God allows vessels of wrath, as he calls it. These are little pots, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction to temporarily live in order that he may show his power over them. He's even sovereign over their, allowing their sin. And and the picture here I want us to get is that God is the great restrainer. Why is our world not as bad as it could be? Because God is merciful. Merciful. He holds us back. But yes, in his sovereignty, to accomplish his purpose, to execute judgment amongst sinners, like Pharaoh, he will release the leash for him to go do his own thing, but that own thing will then accomplish what he intends it to accomplish. And bringing judgment. And he judged the whole nation of Egypt through releasing Pharaoh and hardening his heart. Broadly speaking, God allows sinners to go astray in order to judge the world for its sin and allow the world to see the disaster that sin is. That's what is happening in the world. And we don't know the details, what is God particularly doing, but we can speak to what God is broadly doing and allowing sin to exist. God is showing us that man's ways will not work. Has he done that in your life before? You've been set on doing things your way, and you reaped what you sowed. Why? So that you would see your way doesn't work, and that you need to repent and turn. Well, on a broader scale, God is doing that. There's man's kingdom, the kingdoms of this world, and look, they're burning. Just watch the news, right? I mean, what will we see? This is just the headlines. This week, sexual abuse scandals. School shootings. Drug epidemics. And corruption. In other words, the wages of sin is death. We're seeing that played out every day in heartbreaking fashion. Does it mean we're not compassionate and don't want to see these things stopped? And in the end, God is going to show the world His hatred of sin by showing His power over humanity by throwing them to destruction. While this is one of God's purposes with sinful humanity, it's not His ultimate purpose. Why does God harden in this text? Why does he make vessels of wrath? Well, verse 23 tells us. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The glorious riches of God's mercy shine bright against the darkness of sin. And even against his power and judgment. God is showing us what we deserve. And yet he was merciful to us. Remember, we're of the same lump, we're just like Pharaoh and Esau but yet he chose to show you mercy according to his righteous purposes. God could have let each of us go our own way, but he showed us mercy, didn't he? And every one of us, if we begin to look at our story, whether you you were saved at an early age because your parents showed you a crazy revelation video and you didn't want to go to hell, and you wanted to make sure you were with the people of God, that was his mercy. You didn't set that up. You are born into that family. Apart from the grace of God, there I go also. And there is no room for a sinful, arrogant heart in this room, for any of us, for what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that was not given to you? Even the breath that we breathe, the hearts that we beat, the family we were born into, the education we received, the opportunities that were given, they were given. They were given. And glorious above them all is that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were given out of mercy to you, our Heavenly Father. And he has included you in his good plan for displaying the riches of his glory to the world. Why do we do these testimony times? You might wonder. It's not to torture people, I promise. It's only torturous for the ones who have to be up here. By the way, we don't make you do it. We highly encourage. (laughs) Why do we do that? Because every story is a story of God's triumphing grace. And we forget I'm a trophy. This is just God's trophy room, by the way. you know that? He's got them all over the world, little trophy rooms of where sin abounded, but grace abounded all the more. In your life. because He was merciful to you. He was merciful. And so this text is beautiful for us who believe, isn't it? God has endless treasures, does He not? He is wealthy beyond all measure, and He has chosen to lavish His riches upon us. People who are just as sinful, just as wicked as Pharaoh. He just restrained us. Notice here, he says, in particular, he's prepared us beforehand for glory. Paul's expanding some of the ideas that we saw in chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. Namely, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. This unbreakable chain of God's mercy and salvation, which happened beforehand. And for us, to prepare us for glory. So actually only one other place that this phrase "prepare beforehand is used, that exact phrase. Happens in Ephesians 2.10 and just listen. You can write this down. For we are his workmanship. This is Paul again. He's using that Potter analogy. We're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're a follower of Christ, this is what I want you to connect the dots with. God has prepared your ways before you in order to keep you for glory. He has declared the end from the beginning and is orchestrating everything in between. Both your end, and glory, and in the means, your good works that you walk in them. This isn't apart from human responsibility. Therefore, go do good works. And as Paul said to the Philippians, that he is the one who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's when your mind begins spinning. Is is God doing it or am I doing it? Both. He doesn't work apart from our wills. They're compatible. Doesn't mean they're equal. God's clearly the main causer, but it's not apart from our wills. And so thus far, we've seen God's authority to show mercy and God's desire to show mercy. This is, this is who he is, but he's got a plan, too. He's got a plan to show mercy. And this is where I want us to, uh, to finish up our time this morning. He's, we've spent a lot of time on this, God's purpose of election, his sovereignty, These have been difficult things to chew on, even to grasp, and and, and, and even now we're we're entering some tough terrain. But we could easily lose sight of the bigger picture here. The bigger picture being painted in, in Romans 9 through 11. Remember, Paul is grieving over his lost friends. He's grieving over his brothers and sisters who are Jewish, but they do not believe. He's explaining at least this greater issue of why why, why don't my Jewish kinsmen believe? Why have they rejected God's salvation in Christ? And Paul has taken us on on this path of God's sovereignty to help us understand, at least at some level, some level, the mystery of God's plan of redemption. And this plan is resulting in making the riches of his glorious grace known to the world. That's the plan. And everything is going according to plan, even Israel's unbelief. That's what he's saying. So Israel's unbelief is not an accident, but accords with his plan to show mercy to both Jew and Gentile. This is what he gets to in verse 24. Look, even us... It says, vessels prepared for mer- of mercy prepared for glory, even us, verse 24, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In fact, this is what Paul says has been God's plan all along, and the Old Testament supports this. He brings the prophet Hosea to testify to God's calling of both Jew and Gentile. In verses 25 and 26, And he, he quotes here, Hosea 23 and Hosea uh, or 2:23 and Hosea 1:10. We're not going to turn there, but we read here how, how he quotes them, "Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved." And in the very place where it is said to them, "You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God." These citations are spoken by the prophet Hosea. And if you're, if you're familiar with that story, it's a, it's a very interesting story of the prophet Hosea. God tells Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute who will be unfaithful to you. Her name was Gomer. She's unfaithful. And Hosea goes and purchases her back out of the slave sex trade industry of the day purchases her back she's been unfaithful she's equivalently not his spouse but yet hosea goes and seeks her out and makes her his spouse again and god uses this picture through the life of hosea to say israel this is how i am going to treat you i have married you and you have been unfaithful with foreign gods and you have run and gone your own way you have effectively become not my people but I will make you my people again because I will show mercy to you. And so Paul quotes this passage to explain that these things are happening now not only among the elective, among the Jews, but also the Gentiles. That is us, he says. Even us, verse 24. And you should see yourself there if you're a believer. This is true of me, what's going on. And what Paul is doing in in showing what's going on in Hosea is he's recalling God's surprising ways of showing mercy. And this is it. God shows mercy to the least likely recipient. God shows mercy in the places you wouldn't expect Him to. And guess what? We're the unexpected. From our perspective, we think, oh, yeah, Usually, Jewish people don't believe, but there's more fruit around the world amongst non-Jewish people. And so for us now, it's actually the opposite. But from their perspective, just think of the people you, people you think are just beyond God's reach. Al-Qaeda, ISIS. And then God lavishes His grace upon a people you least expect. This was to humble Israel because Israel thought we we deserve God's grace. They don't. Well, guess what? God goes and gives grace to the people who don't deserve it. That's true on an individual basis as well. If you think you deserve God's grace, you will not have it. He will leave you in your hardened state. But if you humble yourself, who does he give grace to? The humble. But he opposes the proud. So what we're seeing here in this citation from Hosea is that he, his surprising grace is happening as he's saving the nations and he's not saving Israel. But in effect, Israel's now become not my people and there's an anticipation that he will then mercy them again. He has a second citation from Isaiah now. And and Isaiah supports God's plan to harden most of Israel. And he quotes Isaiah 10, 22 through 23, verse 27 of Romans 9. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. That was the promise to to Abraham. "Your, Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Though they be that numerous, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Paul's referencing an oracle of judgment that was given by Isaiah, noting that God would send Israel into captivity to a foreign land, but that only a few, a remnant, would return. And just as Isaiah said, this judgment would be sure and it would be swift. And Paul says this passage finds its ultimate fulfillment in what's happening now. God has sent Israel into a spiritual exile. They have rejected their Messiah, and he has rejected the nation. To then show mercy on a not-people. And now we as his people, he's poising himself to show mercy mercy upon a not-people Israel. That's what's going on here. So this leads us to the third citation in verse 27, or 29. It's Isaiah 1-9. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. He's prepping us here for the rest of Romans 9, 10, and 11. What he's saying here is God has saved a remnant. That's the elect Jews, of which Paul's one of them. Think about the apostles, the church in Jerusalem. It's very small compared to everything else that's going on. If you look at Acts, and now look at the world today. It's very small. But he saved a remnant among the nation of Israel in order to preserve Israel. He didn't wipe them out like Sodom and Gomorrah. You could put it this way, the the remnant are the offspring of promise and serve as a seed of hope that God will mercy the nation of Israel again. And so in effect, Israel has become like the pagan nations, even like Sodom and Gomorrah, yet God hasn't wiped them out. Rather, as he says in verses 22 and 23, he's enduring with great patience, vessels of wrath. Prepared for destruction, generation after generation of hardened Israel. And at the same time, he's showing mercy to the nations. But this remnant amongst ethnic Israel also signifies that God is not done with the nation. Once mercy has come to the world, we're going to see, God will then show mercy upon Israel. I know this sequence of Scripture, if you're looking and your mind might be like, eyes rolling back in your head, you're like, what is going on? Hopefully, by God's grace, I'll help us understand this as we continue to walk through this passage. It's a very difficult and complicated passage. I understand that. But regardless of our ability to maybe understand the the finer details, this is what I want to leave us with this morning. God's purpose of salvation And filling the earth with his glory is not failing. It's not failing, Romans 9, 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Even when we look and we say, wow, it doesn't seem like God's winning. He is. He is. And when we see his judgment, we also know at the same time he's working mercy. And ultimately to magnify his mercy over the greatness of sin. And so, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has mercied you. He's mercied us. And get this He's included you in His saving purposes for the world. We're part of it. And so Oak Park Baptist is not here by accident. And God has merced us so that we can tell Jeffersonville in southern Indiana of his great mercy. Look at me. I was a sinner deserving judgment, but yet he mercied me. He'll mercy you too if you ask. That's what we are supposed to be doing here. So when we, we worship and we hear the word given to us and we're reminded of, of God's judgment, but then his great mercy that triumphed in our lives, he's not just so we can just soak up and, and enjoy the show and get fat on Bible. It's so that we leave here in the places and the spheres that God has given us so that we may tell people I'm a trophy of God's grace. Come, let me take you to the waters that you may taste and see that the Lord is good. Come with me. So on this basis, I'm asking that we would, we would praise him, that we would honor him, and, and Chris is going to lead the, the band up here to do so. We'd see him, yes, as our sovereign creator. He's the potter. We are the clay. He's the creator. We are the creation. But let us not harden our hearts, but may we soften our hearts to him. And as we sing, let this be our prayer. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's stand Did I give you enough time? All right. Let's stand and let's sing these great truths.